So I spent New Year's Eve at my parents' house, actually. Mm -hmm. You've uh, been there. You just got back today, right? It's that, been like a week and a half. I don't know. Something about being the end of a decade. It felt like as good a time as any to spend New Year's Eve with my parents. Mm -hmm. um, and what did you guys do? Well, we went to we went to a racetrack, actually, and we bet on the ponies. <laughs> That's so, like, old world. Did you win anything? Yeah. So I <laughs> placed three bets. What was the name of the horse? Uh, Jet Set Charmer was the first <laughs> horse. Went to a racetrack outside of Hamilton, and I bet uh, $10 on the first horse, the favorite to show. Mm -hmm. And then I bet $5 on the favorite to show. Mm -hmm. Then I bet $5 on the favorite to show. So that was $20 invested, and I walked away with... $22.75. Wow, so, don't spend it all in one shop. More successful than your uh, your investments in Bitcoin and Ethereum. <laughs> so earlier in the week, we went to Windsor and Detroit for mm -hmm. a little family vacation. Oh yeah, I saw, I didn't realize you were going uh, to Windsor and I started seeing like your Facebook posts or whatever. I was like, what the hell are you doing <laughs> there? But you're like, no, well, Detroit's I, actually really cool. I went to confront uh, General Motors, That's right. Roger Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, it's we went because Detroit has some actually very good art galleries in it. We probably have some listeners in Detroit. Shout out to all our listeners in Detroit. Hello. Happy New hello. Year. Uh, yeah, if you were in the right place at the right time on December 27th, you could have seen you me. You might have been within a few dozen or hundred meters of Mr. Will Sloan. Think about it. But we went to the uh, Caesars Casino in Windsor, where I bet I'm 30 years old. I'm going to be 31 in a few days. Mm -hmm. And for the very first time, I bet money on a slot machine. I bet money on a Playboy branded slot machine because I wanted a brand that I could trust, right? You know, if if I'm if I'm throwing away money, I want it I want to throw it away to something I believe right, in. And the Star Wars slot machine was taken. That's so. right. Actually there were a lot of people around the James Bond 007 slot machine. I think probably because People gathered around that one because they wanted to think of themselves as James Bond at the casino. Does James Bond use slot machines? No, he it's plays, not, he plays poker. poker, which <laughs> yeah. is which is cool and badass. Yeah, I immediately lost my five dollars uh -huh. in the Playboy slot machine, and I realized why nobody was playing at that slot machine is because most slot machines you put in five dollars and it, you bet a penny every time. So you can, if you put in five bucks, you can spend all day there just mm -hmm. pressing the button, pressing the button, pressing the button. Playboy slot machine was 50 cents. Right. So I was out pretty quickly. Uh-huh. A lot of people wonder, you know, why do people go to casinos? Because casinos suck, right? They're like bad video arcades. I don't think I've ever been to one. I, I think I know why, though. It's it's simple. It's Most of the people who go to casinos are older people. Mm -hmm. Probably most of them are, you know, do not exactly come from money. And if you're 65 years old, this is your last shot at making it. That is such a dark reading of casinos. It's the most plausible chance you have at this point for, for a, a, big, a big score. Yeah, <laughs> sadly, because because what else is it going to be? This is it. I mean, you were telling a story about going home for the holidays. Was this what this was all leading leading to? Is this just is this because you watched The Irishman over the holidays again? <laughs> yeah, I watched The Irishman for the third time with my parents, and my parents. Uh, really liked it, I think because my parents are getting on in years and the depiction of a man who ages past his his relevance. Spoiler, and, spoiler, spoiler. Uh, spoiler, sorry. And, and, and everybody around him dies and nobody around him remembers who Jimmy Hoffa is anymore. That struck a huge chord for my parents, and as it would, I think, for anybody in their 60s. The movie struck a huge chord with, with me, probably not for the same reasons, but yeah. uh, even though I am getting on a bit, I'm also 30 going on 31, which is kind of a terrifying thought, into a new decade. 
Uh, how was your holiday? Oh, um, it was pretty good. It's not over yet. I'm actually off until next uh, next Monday. So nice. it's the longest I've had off in a while. And um, I've been taking it easy, not responding to DMs or emails and things like that. Uh, yeah. Which, by the way, if anyone sent me a DM or an email that's listening and I haven't responded, uh, that's why I'm on holiday. I have been tweeting and stuff, but, uh, you know, that's a different energy than responding to, yeah, than responding to <laughs> Uh, DMs. Where uh, else am I going to get my news? <laughs> where else are you going to read about like Bernie's fundraising numbers? <laughs> yeah. <that we're> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I've had a, a you know pretty relaxing uh, time mostly in town. Yeah, just really enjoying reading, uh, spending time with my girlfriend. It's been it's been nice. So it is a new decade, a new year, uh, twenty twenty. And whenever something like this happens, I get in a nostalgic, reflective mood. Actually, I have a, I have a question for you uh, before we move on. I mean, to what extent do you actually feel... There's always, I feel like, a kind of um, a debate, sometimes explicit, sometimes just implicit, every year about whether New... Like, everyone posts that Gramsci quote, right, about how New Year's isn't, like, real or, or whatever the quote... Well, you know, the, the one time is an arbitrary Yeah, construct. right, right. And, and yeah. people, people will post something to that effect with kind of, like, varying degrees of seriousness and, or irony. To what extent do you feel... Like, do you feel anything significant this time of year? Is that something... Do you feel significant at any time of the year? Um, you know, I certainly didn't used to. I think I've been feeling it a little bit more now just because it seems like time is going faster now that I'm getting older. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 years ago, it seems in living memory to me in a mm-hmm. way that, you know, 2000 didn't when it was 2010. Yeah. Because I, I, I feel more that kind of sense of possibility and, and kind of newness around the fall, like around September, mm. for like the obvious reason that for probably still the majority of my life, you know, I mean, I was a student from, you know, whatever, when you go to, I, mean, I guess I went to like preschool. So from like preschool up until my master's degree at the end of 2013, mm. you know, September was when things like started. Yeah. And so there still feels like this kind of sense of possibility and newness in the air when that happens, yeah. even though that's just residual. I assume at a certain point that kind of subsides. Maybe listeners who are older than us can can tell us what, like if you're like do you lose that uh, once you've had more of your life outside of that kind of like school lifestyle where fall is the start of the year do you still feel that way in the fall i'd be curious i feel something of that in the fall but at new year now i feel more melancholy than mm-hmm. anything else like i see a lot of people posting their you know this was me 10 years ago this is me now pictures mm-hmm. and like it's nice and everything but it actually makes me feel like I don't know, just just a little twinge of sadness knowing how much time has passed. I know what you mean that that sort of 2009, 2010 does feel like still like kind of recent history. Like it's part of the same continuum. Like continuum. Yeah, exactly. Continuum. Yeah. Um I mean, 2009 is when you and I met. I don't think we met in 2008. We met in early yeah. 2009 through the varsity. And then 2010, 2011 was when well that was when we were both editors there yeah and that that still i wouldn't say that seems recent but yeah you've you've already said it part of the same continuum Mm -hmm. and it's going to be weird like 10 years from now is it just going to be a continuum twice as big or is there going to be a different continuum yeah i don't know this is one of the things that you know about adulthood that i still don't really know i mean much has changed in the last 10 years and i've been thinking about uh my own political evolution (laughs) I think a lot of us were radicalized this decade, and 
we're we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the movement that changed everything. Yes, I'm referring to I'm with Coco. <laughs> so you brought this up and I had literally no idea what you were talking about. I uh, thought a political man like you. I was at I was at Occupy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, our younger listeners may not remember this, but this, this I think... I don't think is listeners that are remember this. <laughs> I, I think this was a phenomenon that was peak early Obama era. Mm-hmm. Um, you may remember that Conan O'Brien was briefly the host of The Tonight Show. Now, The Tonight Show, entertainment institution, Johnny Carson, what, what more do I have to tell you? That's a name that probably doesn't mean anything to our younger listeners like, uh, anymore. Yeah, Bob Hope. Uh. Yeah, uh, Al Jolson. <laughs> For years, we had been told in the media, uh, Conan O'Brien had really, really wanted the host The Tonight Show. This had been his birthright. This had been something that he had worked all his life towards. And finally, Jay Leno, the hated Jay Leno, gave the reins over to Conan. And Conan would be the one who, you know, it's like Obama after George W. Bush, right? Like, (laughs) this is the guy who's going to right the ship and help the Republic fulfill its promise. But what happened was that Jay Leno was given a consolation evening show, a primetime talk show that didn't do well. And Conan O'Brien's ratings in The Tonight Show were also not very good. This is so boring, but it's context that's required. No, it launched a movement. Well, yeah, it did launch a movement. Because, you know, it's often, you know, just the tiniest spark that starts a wildfire. (laughs) And that wildfire started when NBC said, we're going to give Jay Leno back The Tonight Show. And we're going to boot, we're going to boot. Conan has to go back to 1230. It's great because I lived through this and I don't remember any of this. This is all new information to me. This could have, you could be telling me that this happened like this year and I would believe you. And people actually took to the streets in protest. Like there was a protest in Rockefeller Plaza. People had signs that said, I'm with Coco. It was a proto, you know, hashtag movement. Right, right. Uh, Forgive my ignorance. Coco is like a Conan, like... Uh, nickname, nickname I, I suppose. Never heard that before. Now, all of this spirited activism did not actually write the course of history. Conan O'Brien lost The Tonight Show. Jay Leno continued to host it for another four years or so. Conan, as we know, now hosts a show on TBS. Uh, Conan O'Brien got, I think, a thirty or forty million dollar payout. <laughs> so, so it's, it's you know that's the perfect way to begin a decade where. You know, for so many people, activism is just kind of competing over like who has the best consumption choices. And so often like political victories are just like one celebrity you like getting a lot of money or a movie you like designed by a soulless corporation, like doing better at the box office from like the other corporation that you're less partisan for. Conan O'Brien, if he was a lifestyle brand, Conan O'Brien was kind of like the upscale late night life uh, lifestyle brand he was he was the kind of smarter the harvard guy he had he had quirkier he did, did right for comedy. the simpsons oh yeah i have nothing against conan yeah. o'brien he's a funny guy i never watched the conan o'brien he, he wrote the monorail episode which yeah I mean, is one, one of the one, one of the, the great achievements yeah, of yeah. western culture yeah. <laughs> um and and jay leno is jay leno you uh-huh. know, it goes without saying what he is so it felt like it felt like Bush beating Obama or something. Uh-huh. Uh, not a per- No, no. It felt like Bush beating Kerry. Right, right, right. right. That's what it felt like. <laughs> M- meanwhile, of course, the Tea Party was gaining traction. <laughs> so this perfectly segues into what I want to talk about next, which is um, if people haven't seen it, the New Republic has been running this series called Decade from Hell, where you know various New Republic writers, and there's some, some very good people writing for the New Republic these days, 
it's got a look a look back at our at, at an arbitrary 10-year period that began with a great outpouring of hope and ended in a cavalcade of despair so there's a particularly good uh, piece by alex shepherd from a few days ago the daily show's rally to restore sanity predicted a decade of liberal futility now i'm going to assume that everyone listening is familiar with the rally to restore sanity um we did an episode on it what in like Michael and us season two or something. Yeah. And I think just generally, I mean, I have not thought about that episode since we did it, but I think generally speaking, our takeaway uh, revisiting it uh, was that it held up even worse than we'd expected. And there were things about it that were bad that we didn't even remember. So apart from all the obvious criticisms, like that this wasn't a real rally about anything or whatever, you know, Stuart at one point, you know, he, he does this like both sidesism thing where he's talking about how there are like, you know, Marxists that hate the Constitution and, and well, you, you cannot like, confuse Tea Partiers with racists, yeah, or Democrats with Marxists, yeah, who hate the Constitution, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. There are terrorists and racists and Stalinists and theocrats, but those are titles that must be earned. You must have the resume. Not being able to distinguish between real racists and tea partiers or real bigots and Juan Williams or Rick Sanchez is an insult not only to those people but to the racists themselves who have put in the exhausting effort it takes to hate. Um, and so Alex Shepard had a had a good piece uh, looking back on the rally to restore sanity, which, you know, we didn't know at the time, but it signified so much about what would be dumb uh, in the years that followed. Uh, and also, I think, was an early version of the type of uh, so-called activism that has really peaked during the Trump era. So I just want to read a bit here from this article. In response to the growing hysteria, which was fanned by figures like Beck and Sarah Palin, Stewart concocted a different kind of event with a very Obama-esque message. Maybe we would do a March of the Reasonable on a date of no particular significance, Stewart said in the summer of 2010, according to New York. In a 2010 post for The Owl, Maria Bustillos wrote that the rally was meant to, quote, present to the public a more truthful reflection of itself as a diverse, friendly, reasonable people who can agree to live and work and endure hardship peaceably and graciously. Stewart's audience picked up on the message, carrying signs with messages like, I disagree with you, but I'm pretty sure you're not Hitler, and things are pretty okay, and what do we want? Moderation. When do we want it? In a reasonable time frame. It's great, because like, you know, seven or eight years later, that would just be like a left Twitter joke, but they meant it non-ironically. The decision to make this an ostensibly nonpartisan affair led to a number of weird incongruities. Republicans were welcomed, but there were probably more conservatives on stage, thank you, Kid Rock, than in the audience. Stewart was campaigning against polarization and extremism, but instead of launching a biting critique of the party that had accelerated those trends, he spent much of the time on stage attacking the media. At one point, Stewart and Colbert gave out awards for reasonableness and fear, with a number of news outlets receiving the latter. A lengthy video was played mashing up irate commentary from the likes of Beck, Bill O'Reilly, and Keith Olbermann, who solemnly pledged to be less of a jerk after being roasted by Stewart. And then he, he's got uh, the money quote a few paragraphs later, so where Stewart said, Most Americans don't live their lives as only Democrats or Republicans or liberals and, or conservatives. There are terrorists and racists and Stalinists and theocrats, but those are titles that must be earned and you, and you must have the resume. 
Yeah, how would he define a Stalinist? Are there a lot of Stalinists in the UK or in, in the US as like a serious tendency that has to be dealt with? This article actually quotes Bill Maher, who in a rare moment of insight at the time said that John Stewart was equating birthers with 9-11 truthers. But as as Maher said, and I hate to be quoting Bill Maher. No, but, but he was but right. He, he You're was right, right about this. Uh, as Bill Maher said, there are plenty of birthers in Congress like, yeah. right now, and there are no 9-11 truthers in Congress. Somebody who did get uh, the rally to restore sanity right at the time uh, was Mark Ames, and he has this article called The Rally to Restore Vanity, Generation X Celebrates Its Homeric Struggle Against Lameness. This was published on October 30th, 2010, and I thought it would pair nicely to have kind of an on-the-ground account from the time, so I just want to read a couple paragraphs here. Mm-hmm. And actually, some of this is applicable to, to now. He writes, Maybe what's happening in America today will seem funny to some other culture in some future time. How it happened that in the depths of America's decline, liberals, the great opposition to everything mean and ruthless in this culture, couldn't muster up a get-together for anything better than a mock-in, led by a clown. I confess (laughs) I couldn't hack it. I came to the rally, saw those two pastry chefs from the Mythbusters show get all the liberal elites to hold a postmodern human wave, an ironic human wave, allowing all the self-conscious liberal elites to play like real America while salvaging their vanity because it was all ironic and postmodern, and to make sure that everyone knew they were not really human waving, but really meta-human waving. The Mythbusters duo deconstructed the human wave, and all the liberal elites smiled and laughed knowingly because all 150,000 were in on the biggest inside joke wankathon in American history, and that was it for me. I was out of there. So I think that's very on point, uh, you know, scathing it is as it is. And I, I mean, I think anyone of Will and my generation probably has some warmer feelings about Jon Stewart than maybe some some older writers do. But to me, that gets it what is the, the key takeaway from the Rally to Restore Sanity, which really was the perfect, we didn't know it at the time, but the perfect way to begin this stupid decade we've just finished. The meta quality to it, the fact that, it, you know, at the height of this like white nationalist backlash with, you know, a Tea Party insurgency being funded by the Koch brothers and stuff, the opposition decided that what they were going to do is they were going to hold a giant rally in defense of moderation. And they couldn't even do that earnestly. They had to have it be a sort of like simulacrum of a rally. And wankathon is the right word because it wasn't really about moderation. It was about self-congratulation. We're the reasonable ones. You were were asking recently whether this this radicalization of the center uh, is is a new phenomenon because you know, the K-Hive is obviously very vocal these days yeah. in a way that supporters of John Kerry and Al Gore weren't. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of the people who are in in the K-Hive maybe or who are Joe Biden supporters were very comfortable for a lot of the, a lot of their life thinking that they were the left. And now that the ground has shifted underneath them, you know, uh, during, during the Bush era and the early Obama era, you had Democrats and Republicans, and that was the right and the left. Mm-hmm. Anything towards the left of the Democrats was a discredited ideology. So there was there was no need to feel passionately upset over any besmirching of the honor of uh, John Kerry or Al Gore because there was there seemed to be nobody nobody v- valid from the left who was who was doing it. It was yeah, only I mean, from the right. I mean they they you know they complained endlessly about like Nader voters and things like that. Right. But but I mean those I think, were straw men. Those people didn't have any power. No, they did that knowing that it was just you know like that was like a release valve for their frustrations that like Al Gore lost his own home state and things like that. You know, so I don't know when the rally to restore sanity happened. I think that was largely regarded as a left wing rally. Oh, yeah. Um, 
uh, it was it was regarded as the left wing response to mm. Glenn Beck's rally to restore honor. Mm-hmm. But it's odd because it was like it was a left that didn't identify itself as as yeah. a, a left. Mm-hmm. You know, like they didn't seem to regard left wing as an actual set of political values. It was it was being left wing good. It was, good. was, it it was, was goodness. Well, you know? it was the same as how many liberal many liberals see the political spectrum today, where there's not exactly a left and right. There are feral reactionaries that you know deny climate change and are racist and hate science. And then there's people that are just reasonable in a non-ideological way. Mm-hmm. And they believe in institutions and procedures and, and they believe in being decent and polite. Um, and, and that was being left-wing. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, that was that was the closest thing there was to it, but they probably wouldn't have wanted to identify as such. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that is what passed for you know, the, the, the left is like, look, I'm not, I'm not ideological at all. I just believe in reason and science. And, mm-hmm. you know, many, there are many uh, phenomenon from the previous decade that speak to this, you know, for example, like the rise of the so-called, what they call it, the new enlightenment, you know, the new atheist people mm-hmm. and things like that. The, the endless fixation during the previous decade, um, we actually might have a future, another future episode on this uh, coming up soon, but like the endless fixation on theocrats and, you know, mm-hmm. during the Bush era and things like that, the, this kind of fixation on religion and all, As all something that. that was unreasonable. That's and... right. All, all those things kind of like peaked at the, at the end of the 2010. And, and you see them uh, in various forms. And I think, you know, in some ways, as you're pointing out, manifest in something like the rally to restore sanity. But all of that is still true. A lot of people who define their politics based on particular signifiers still do the same thing. But now they're confronted with the phenomenon of an actually ideologically coherent left that has a program and isn't just attacking conservatives, it's attacking them or, or at least like their faves yeah. as well. Well, it's interesting when I hear those quotes from Jon Stewart when he was delivering his Chaplin-esque speech at mm-hmm. the end of the Rally to Restore Sanity because he has so little he has so little room to work in because yeah. anything to the left of sort of the Democratic Party is a discredited ideology. It's he, like he's, he's, not, he's not able to access it. I don't think there is even a single kind of programmatic thing that he brings up yeah. as as something that everyone's supposed to rally around it's so impotent it's like sad. there was no there was no there were no rallies of this kind to be like we need universal health care mm-hmm. um even using this kind of you know ironic foil or whatever there was nothing like that oh and i don't think we mentioned but i think it was like either days or just a few weeks at, right after the rally that the republicans took back the house and completely slaughtered the democrats right. in the midterms and that was the end of obama having the legislative mandate uh, that he could have used, but decided not to to affect any kind of substantive uh, substantive change or whatever. But um, actually, the, just to go back to what we were saying before, an exchange I had uh, on Twitter recently uh, is kind of emblematic of this this phenomenon, this wider phenomenon we're talking about. Because you know, one of my hobby horses is you know hating on like horseshoe theory, like centrist horseshoe theory. So the idea that uh, you see this again and again. People who think of themselves as being in the center of politics, they compl- they like to complain about the right and the left. This is really just defies belief when, you know, the choice is like Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn or something like that, or when it's potentially Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. Uh, I tweeted out a video of a rally Bernie did uh, a few weeks ago where he said something like, you know, we need to have a government of the working class and for the working class, something like that. And so I just said, like, there are people that earnestly want us to believe that this is functionally identical to Trumpism. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, un, you know, like, how anybody could think that, even in a superficial way, is unbelievable. And this guy, 
I didn't engage with the this reply guy, although a lot of other people did. And so there was this protracted argument, I think, that went. It was like a flame war in my mentions for several days where this guy was saying uh, that what bothered him about, what, what he thought was Trumpian about Bernie's speech was uh, like how like definitive and unequivocal it was. Like he was uh -huh. threatened by the moralism of it. I don't think he used that word, but like the fact that Bernie, he said something about how Bernie always deals in absolutes and he was very uncomfortable with this. Mm -hmm. And I think that is highly illustrative of what makes a certain kind of centrist uncomfortable with this new left. And going back to the rally to restore sanity, which is how liberalism started out the decade, this was, you know, less than two years after, you know, this sweeping democratic victory um, in the 2008 elections. And they were so afraid to deal in absolutes at all uh, I mean, forget saying healthcare is a right. They couldn't even have like a single program point that they were trying to push. Mm -hmm. All they had was like moderation and... The, Using your inside voice. That's right, <laughs> right. So the big difference between the beginning of the decade using the rally to restore sanity as kind of our, our reference point, and now very little I think about liberalism has fundamentally changed. If anything, all of those kind of shibboleths have been upheld and reaffirmed and doubled down on. The difference now is that there's an alternative. And if anything, that's just exacerbating all of the, uh, you know, frustration with that is exacerbating all the worst tendencies of the so-called middle. Well, I'm still with Coco. So believe it or not, we do actually have a movie we're going to talk about today, which I guess kind of ties into what we're saying, because uh, it's partly just because uh, it was a, it's a movie that Will and I both saw recently and, and really enjoyed, but also because it made it onto, you know, I mean, you know, you know, Will plays this kind of cerebral guy that's into art films or whatever, but he's fundamentally like a trend humper. And there's no greater trendsetter than the former president of the United States, Mr. Change, we can believe in himself, uh, Barack Obama. And so he came out with one of his kind of year-end lit because obama's just turned into like a basically normie lifestyle guru now right that's right and so he came out with a list he does he does a list of his favorite books of the year yeah. music movies or TV like shows. whatever his little committee comes up with the the list i think it has like the the same relationship to him as sort of like you yeah. know like perfume branded that with like a celebrity or something has like I'm sure he served in in some kind of you know advisory role or whatever. You know, I think I think there's a chance that he watched all those movies. You know, <laughs> a, a guy a guy like him. Wait, I think, which I think, which former president was it? Clinton that released like a list every year of the movies he watched well, in the White House. He didn't release it, but eventually, you know, once time has passed, that that record just gets released of what the movies the president screened were and. Uh, the stuff that someone freedom of information requests it. <laughs> the the stuff that Bill Clinton screened, it, it was amazing. It was all just stuff like you know Leslie Nielsen movies and <laughs> you know small time crooks. But of course, Shanghai noon. Obama is a bit. He's a bit higher brow. So yeah. what 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 did what was he into? It, it's it's not a bad list or anything. There's there are some good movies on here. There are a couple of movies in here that sort of surprised me. I didn't expect.
fact, the uh, uh, Chinese film Ash is Purest White by Jia Zhangke on there. I guess, you know, somebody on his on his committee has good taste. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's stuff like a lot of kind of upscale independent films. Like, well, he's, he has the movie that his company produced, American Factory, uh-huh. uh, which is fine. No false modesty. The Irishman is on here. Uh, Christian Petzold's Transit in here. Greta Gerwig's Little Women. The Irishman. Marriage Story. The Irishman, yeah. Ford versus is Ferrari, um, a, a, movie, right. a, a movie about cool dads. <laughs> uh, uh, he's got another section here that I really like that says, and a quick list of TV shows that I considered as powerful as movies, and one of them is Watchmen, the TV show. I find this list interesting more for what's excluded than what's mm-hmm. included. Like, Right, it's sometimes it's the notes you don't play. What are the movies that he deemed not sufficiently on brand to be on the list like okay ford versus ferrari is here but why not ad astra or what about once upon a time in hollywood could he not be seen putting a movie where the manson family gets slaughtered yeah probably on the list well it's probably just because it's like really violent and but but the irishman is really violent i guess so was it because roman polanski was a character in once upon a time in hollywood or did he just not like it Maybe he just didn't like it. <laughs> well, it's such a puzzle. It's one of the movies of this year that you would expect to be on a list like mm-hmm. this. Or what about, uh, I mean, I guess it's too much to expect Uncut Gems would be on here. But what about what about Knives Out? I mean, there are just a ton of movies that you think would be on Barack Obama's list. Now, not that we were actually inspired by this, but Obama's, uh, like, this isn't why we're doing the movie. But Obama's list also includes the movie Parasite. Actually, this is why we're doing the movie, because (laughs) Parasite's inclusion on Obama's list, uh, I I think, (laughs) bothers me. And it was also on Elon Musk's list. The Economist put Parasite on their list. Look, Parasite is probably the most acclaimed movie of the year. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. It's great. It's brilliant. It has 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Certainly deserves it, I think. I think it's a wonderful film. I think it's intelligent. I think it's wildly entertaining. And it's it's an anti-capitalist film. I am bothered by the fact that it's so universally beloved. I want to, like, maybe, like, let's unpack it a little bit. Maybe we should just start by talking about the plot. I presume a lot of our listeners have okay, seen it. Okay, so I guess, yeah, if you haven't seen it, first of all, you definitely should. And I don't know, maybe skip the next five minutes or whatever. We'll try to do a concise little plot summary here. So spoiler warning. I think it's a movie that benefits from not knowing much in advance. Very much so. I didn't really know. I, I knew that it was Korean and that it was kind of leftist liked it. And that's all I knew going in, basically. I knew my own magazine had positively reviewed it. And mm-hmm. that was about it. So basically, it's about a family... Uh, that lives in a slum. A working class family lives in a slum in Seoul. And the son basically gets a sort of gig from one of his friends who tutors the daughter in a very very wealthy family. And basically, he kind of hands the job off to him. And he gets the job on falsified credentials. That's right. Uh, The family is quite industrious. And so like the sister knows how to fake documentation and things like that, like through graphic design and various Mm -hmm. other things. Slowly but surely, the whole family uses its connections and kind of falsified identity to insert itself into the lives of this sort of bourgeois family in Seoul. Uh, we know that the dad is employed in some kind of, um, this is the patriarch of the wealthy families employed in some kind of soulless, you know, tech thing. The wife doesn't really do anything, but she has a servant that does everything for her. The design of the house I thought was absolutely oh, incredible. Yeah. You know, it's this, it's this kind of uh, palatial home where everything is like, 
all the surfaces are kind of smooth in a way that's supposed to be metaphorical for like when you have this amount of wealth, you just pass through life with no resistance. Um, and Bong Joon-ho is such a good director that he makes great use of the space. Yeah. You know, like you explore, like every area of the house is put to use. Well, and, the, and the, the, the house itself, I think the structure of it mirrors the thesis of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, because you find out there, I mean, there's a basement that only the servant seems to go down to. Um, so that's like the uh, official kind of lower portion of the house for where the, the actual family doesn't sort of to go down there because they have a you know a surf to do it for them but then you find out there's actually another secret chamber that's even further below the house mm-hmm. where you know and this is like major spoiler, spoiler warning folks the you know the husband the the extremely injured and sick husband of the of the maid who's worked in the house for many years she keeps him down there and she takes care of him and she steals food mm-hmm. um and he's sort of gone like feral in the in the basement now this resourceful working class family has displaced the maid and all the other staff and this longtime maid has nowhere else to go. So they discover her, they discover the husband in the basement. The maid is pleading with the family, can I can I please just live in the basement? Yeah. Hey, look, we're on the same side here. We're both trying to leech off this family. She keeps calling her like sis. Yeah. She's she and and I think that's very revealing because she's actually appealing to their kind of common class interest but the the working class family is living it up the rich family is away so they're just they're basically they've just taken over the house Mm -hmm. and they're just enjoying themselves and they they don't want to give that up Mm -hmm. and they don't want to share it with anybody Mm -hmm. so they so they reject this kind of uh they, they reject worker solidarity in favor of like uh, fake bourgeois a simulacrum of bourgeois lifestyle that's like completely ephemeral but so the film you know after that gets quite a bit darker and by the way if you haven't seen the film this won't really ruin it i mean there's nothing that really will compare to the experience of watching this film tonally it's incredible uh it is incredibly funny um while also being very very dark i think it's almost uncategorizable as a film because it's you know it like black comedy is probably about the closest you could do yeah but. a lot of a lot of korean movies and bong joon ho's movies in particular have this peculiar mix of tones the, this mix of very heavy drama with almost slapstick comedy and thriller elements that conforms to no no american genre you can see it in a bit of Bong Joon-ho's earlier films like Snowpiercer and The Host. Mm -hmm. But so I guess uh, we should talk about sort of how the movie ends, which is that the family from the slum, you know, kind of uh, manages to basically cling on to all of the, the privileges and it's accrued through deceit and manipulation. It's even, uh, to some extent, sort of inserted itself socially into the wealthier family's life. There's times where they almost seem to be you know, friendly. Mm-hmm. And so the night after this horrific flood that basically floods the slum, it destroys their own house. Uh, the wealthy family is having this, uh, this garden party for their younger son. And I don't know, the scene that is maybe most memorable or just the, the, the exchange is most memorable is when, uh, the two dads are hiding behind a tree and they're getting ready to do like a sketch for the, for the little kid. And it's kind of a demeaning, sketch but then the wealthy one the wealthy dad he he's pitching it as like a friend would pitch it to a friend and then his face just falls when he encounters resistance and he says look hey think about this as part of your work yeah and i love that because what he's really doing is he's underscoring fundamentally this is a relationship of servitude Mm -hmm. um greased by money and power Mm -hmm. and privilege and that's and that's all it is and this is what incites the final violent uh, Mm -hmm. confrontation Uh uh-huh and we could probably we could probably just leave it leave it there but so this is a film that i think is 
radically anti-capitalist and I mean, so much so that I, I don't really understand how it got a widespread theater release. And it is it is this without being particularly didactic or heavy-handed. So there's not really kind of an epic... Mo- there's no ma- I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore sort of, sort of moment, is there? I guess I'm not surprised that this movie's become an international phenomenon uh, just because, you know, it's A, it's so entertaining and well-made, and B, it's a movie that's aimed directly at the zeitgeist. People of all class strata care about class right now. Studios are probably on the lookout for material that deals with class in some way or another. I think it's interesting that some of the few movies over the last six months that have really been enormous box office successes, movies like Joker and Hustlers and uh, this one, you know, for a foreign film, have been ones that are about directly about how the world is a dystopia. Mm-hmm. The movies that seem to be doing well lately are, are ones that are aiming at this zeitgeist. Mm. Speaking of which, uh, there's a quote here that someone sent me from uh, from the director and, he, and he's, he's addressing, I don't know, this must be from an interview, and he's addressing kind of the global reception of the film. And he says, I tried to express a sentiment specific to the Korean culture. All the responses from different audience were pretty much the same. And then he adds, essentially, we all live in the same country called capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I guess what's been bothering me about this movie is why is it on Obama's list? Wait, I know why it's on Obama's <laughs> list, because this family is radically entrepreneurial. <laughs> because they've uh, seen what the gig economy can offer and they've been resourceful within its confines. So, so uh, you know, Dave Anthony from The Dollop was was tweeting about why the hell is this movie on Obama's list? Like some journalist should legitimately ask him what he yeah. likes about this movie. And I was thinking about it and I actually think I have, I, I mean, there's the funny answer, which is yours, but I, I, which, and originally I was workshopping a tweet that was basically that joke you just did. But then I, but then I thought about it and I was like, I actually think I know why Obama likes Likes this movie and okay. i think i know what okay he'd say let, let, let me see if i can guess uh-huh. is it that it's a movie that shows that job creators need to expand opportunity <laughs> i mean yeah basically i mean i think it's a i think there is a reactionary reading this movie where it's about how inequality threatens class harmony mm. as opposed like the problem you could watch this movie and conclude if you're an idiot or you know or just a liberal or, or the, the former president if, of the United if, States. yeah if you if you if you like going to davos non-ironically uh-huh. that equips you to conclude that what this movie is about like the problem isn't the existence of a system that creates these kind of polarities. Mm-hmm. The problem isn't a system that not only encourages but guarantees exploitation, which then, you know, leads to all kinds of other horrible things, the breakdown of families, the destructions of destruction of tradition, the commodification of all human relationships, violence, crime, uh, deceit, lies, etc. Doesn't just, you know, encourage those things, guarantees them. No, no, no. The problem uh, isn't the system. The problem is when inequality gets so bad uh-huh. that it threatens opportunity. Right. And then we get, we get violence <laughs> like this. So it's like if the family that lives in the slum in Seoul, if they had access to some kind of program, I mean, we see them at the beginning where they, uh, they're, they're doing something with pizza boxes where they have to fold them and then they basically get like a rebate on the pizza boxes and like the rate for it is ludicrous. Like they're hardly getting paid anything per pizza box. And of course, the pizza box company, the pizza company is just exploiting them and tells them like, oh, well, you know, 
30% of these aren't even usable. Like, so we're not even going to pay you for those ones <laughs> yeah. or whatever. So I guess we can conclude from that, like maybe 20 or 30 years earlier, a family like this, they might, there might've been a factory for them to work in or something. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's like, if you're, if you're like a centrist Democrat and you watch this movie, I think you can conclude like the problem is that they didn't know how to code or something. Mm-hmm. Right. Like Joe Biden literally yesterday, I'm sorry to be so heavy handed about this, but he lit- he did an, a literal coal miners can learn to code Mm-hmm. like flourish in a speech you know again this is one of those left twitter jokes that centrist democrats actually just say uh-huh. and they mean it if this family had had like enough tax credits um enough voucher programs that they maybe could have got one of their kids into a private school etc cetera, etc cetera. if there were like there just need to be a few more technocratic solutions that enable people to have you know not equality but but opportunity and in all <laughs> seriousness i mean i'm only like I'm only like 5% joking when I think that that would be like Obama's reading the movie. It has to be. In the wake of the uh, financial crisis uh, in 2008, um, there was, you know, this great flourishing of what at the time felt like sort of radical literature, but was really like this sort of centrist inequality literature, Mm -hmm. which was such a big deal. Tons of bestsellers in the wake of the financial crisis. Books that, in retrospect, were really not radical at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not quite this kind of book, but it's similar. Um, a book I revisited uh, this year for an essay I wrote, Paul Krugman's The Conscience of a Liberal, which at the time when I wrote, <laughs> which I think came out in 2007, so it's a bit imperfect for this analogy. But that was a time a book I read as, as kind of a radically progressive document. And reading it again, it's, it's really not that. In fact, you know, it's very nostalgic for like the 1950s and stuff. It's not, it's not great. There were tons of books like that. But if you actually go back and read them, I mean, this is generalizing a bit, but they are all making basically the same argument, which is unlike the stuff that was coming out of right-wing think tanks at the time, which we know, which will say stuff like, um, actually, inequality has never been lower, or it's not even a thing, or like, actually, poverty has been declining the states for 700 years, or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever. Um, unlike those, they will concede that inequality is a problem, not poverty, in- inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, so right away, that's already sort of a climb down, because it's like, because <laughs> inequality is a relational thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they may even go as far as conceding that there's like some excess at the top or whatever. But the solution is never abolish the institution of billionaires, right? It's never abolish the system that creates this. It's always some relaunched, rebranded version of the same kind of mostly mild liberal solutions to things like a bit more Keynesianism, retraining programs, uh, maybe, maybe some kind of new taxation thing. I mean, honestly, this is why the basic income Mm -hmm. gets kicked around, not just I mean, there's a kind of more serious left-wing version of it, but this is why it's getting kicked around by a figure like Andrew Yang, who's Mm -hmm. like, you know, a kind of wonky radical centrist, you know, with some like libertarian tendencies or whatever. This was kind of the, uh, you know, Davos officialdom's response to the fact that the uh, political and economic consensus that like only a couple years earlier they'd said was like perfect and impregnable had almost like liquidated the entire global economy in the span (laughs) of a few hours. Um, This was kind of their response to that. But uh, there was, yeah, there was no kind of serious attempt to grapple with the, you know, systemic failure of the whole thing, either intellectually or, you know, when the, when they actually had power. I mean, it's not like uh, the Obama White House actually decided to like rein in Wall Street. They gave them a slap on the wrist, bailed out the bankers, and moved didn't didn't jail a single one, and and moved on. So in the wake of all of that, in the wake of the last decade of liberalism, a movie like this 
I mean, I think it it's riding the the current zeitgeist, which is actually you know a more radical one that's more critical in a kind of um, you know systemic way of the system we live under. But I think it's also riding when I you know when I see it when you see it on like a, a list like Obama's. I think it's also, to me, riding just whatever's left of that kind of earlier kind of post-financial crash zeitgeist, uh-huh. uh, you know, that started not quite at the the start of this decade, a little earlier, although really this decade actually started in about 2007, because decades are never actually 10 years. They're like, they're like moments. Decade was actually 2007 to 2016. 2016 was the start of the, the next decade. We're only a few years <laughs> into the, this decade now. So I shouldn't let the libs ruin the movie for me. Yeah, that was the point I was trying to make. Good. <laughs> the movie's great. Everyone should see it. Because the decade is over, I've had cause to think about the cinematic landscape of the last decade. It's been interesting, folks. Uh, much has changed over the last 10 years. When I was thinking about movies that were my favorites of the last decade, and you can hear more about them on, on our sister podcast. Well, in fact, I should cut in here to say, I wanted to do a whole episode where we didn't even watch a movie. We, I said, Will, don't you have a bunch of lists on your blog of just, <laughs> you know, like best of the 2010s or whatever? Why don't we just go through the movies and talk about them as cultural phenomena? And he said, oh, I can't. I did that on my other podcast. Yeah, I know. I, I'm sorry. Uh, don't worry. I love all my children equally. <laughs> but I did realize how much the election of Donald Trump probably changed the way I think about even things like art and aesthetics. And if I may say, doing doing the Michael and Us podcast. I think that probably has yeah. a lot to do with it too. It's it's just like when I when I think of the stuff that I really liked this decade, certain notions of what is good and serious no longer seem relevant in this post-Trump world. Yeah, I think I feel the same way. I don't know. I look back at the decade and a movie like Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie seems so much more of a, of a movie that captures the spirit of the times than certain other perhaps glossier, more prestigious films. Well, like, so what's an example of, uh, I, I don't know if we're going to go strictly off your list here, but what was an example of a, of a film that you maybe thought of more seriously at the start of the decade than you do at the end? Well, I don't know how seriously I took, say, the Marvel movies at the start of the decade, but I think when it comes to kind of like blockbuster or corporate culture, I would have had, you know, a more, uh, let's say, conciliatory Obama era. Um, well, when we met, wishy-washy uh, attitude. I have a memory. I remember this because when we met, <laughs> we had a, a sort of mild argument about the Dark Knight, which I was very much in favor of. Y- you were, you were, you were pro Dark Knight. Yeah. Little did you know that, like, less than 10 years later, you and I would record a Dark Knight Rises podcast for our ironic Michael Moore-branded yeah, hit yeah. podcast. I feel like I was trying to separate aesthetics from politics in that movie. Now I think both the aesthetics and the politics are a little are questionable, but... <laughs> I think I was trying to make the case in that early argument that it's like, yeah, you know, it's a conservative movie, but mm-hmm. uh, but sure, but surely uh, we sensible men can appreciate mm-hmm. a good conservative movie. Yeah, and there's a difference between you know a conservative movie and you know and, and, a, and a racist movie. Yeah, just that, like there's actually, a difference between a, a left wing movie and a Marxist movie that hates the Constitution. Yeah, actually, <laughs> another thing about just the decade in cinema is. 
obviously there's been this explosion in digital video, which has been prophesied that it would democratize the medium. And maybe it has to a certain extent. But filmmaking is, of course, still very much a hobby of the privileged. And there are many more and different kinds of movies by different kinds of people being made now. But they're much smaller and they're much harder to find because they're all part of this big streaming flood, this big video on demand uh, torrent that comes every week. Meanwhile, all the major studios have basically gotten out of the serious movie business. The big studios, the traditional studios, concentrate almost entirely on franchises and cinematic universes now and middlebrow movies for grown-ups quote-unquote Mid- middle budget as yeah well, yeah they get made by the major streaming services stuff mm-hmm. like the irishman or marriage story go to netflix now so i don't know it's like the stuff i've gravitated to it it seems like the movies that i've liked have just gotten so much smaller over the last 10 years and the movies that i've particularly liked they almost seem like protests yeah. Like a lot of the stuff I've really liked over the last 10 years have been sort of minimalist, glacially paced Asian movies. Mm-hmm. Movies like, say, Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives by Epichipong, Weir Sathakul, or uh, Stray Dogs by Simon Lang, or Cemetery of Splendor. Movies that, you know, just by their incredibly slow pace, force you to reconceive your ideas of what is beautiful, force you to reconceive your ideas of what what is a. What is a major narrative event? Force mm-hmm. you to sort of come towards the movie in a way that is less passive than, you know, the big Hollywood movies. I don't know if I'm making sense. No, now. that makes sense to me. And of course, on the flip side, um, for uh, our Patreon subscribers, you can hear, I think it was our last episode, we basically descended into madness, you know, minutes after uh, coming out of the rise of Skywalker, mm-hmm. because a blockbuster is no longer just something that you you know, you're kind of like, oh, that was big and dumb or whatever. It actually will drive you like completely nuts. Well, I think, yeah, if you watch Cemetery of Splendor next to a movie like The Rise of Skywalker, one, Cemetery of Splendor is a movie that's become very dear to me over the last few years because it, it sort of, it gives you almost nothing. You have to come towards it. You have to look into the movie to find what is there. And The Rise of Skywalker is a movie that is algorithmically generated to delight you uh, to, to the point of being incomprehensible, to the point where there are, there are things happening every every minute of the movie. There are new worlds being introduced every 10 minutes, new characters every 10 minutes, and it's retconning all the things you didn't like in the last oh. one uh, because it's like a, a totally focused group. It, it's... It's the car that Homer Simpson designed, you know? <laughs> doesn't doesn't even... Is the it, Homer. The Homer. Yeah. yeah. It's the Homer. Yeah, let's not go back down that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> yeah. We had, I don't know, we did 70 or 80 minutes on it, and I honestly could have done another hour, but Will had a party to go to or something. It's probably <laughs> yeah. for the, for the yeah. best. It's maybe a slightly awkward analogy, but I think in my main area of interest, I've experienced something a bit parallel to what you just described, which is... 10 years ago, and we've talked about this a lot on the show, you know, I I still had some residual elements of what you might call my, you know, big P or my small P political phase. Mm -hmm. Um, 10 years ago, I still read, you know, pretty regularly the op-ed sections of major newspapers. And I thought a lot of the op-ed writers were very insightful and interesting. Part of the reason for that is that I was still invested in the idea of politics as, you know, an enterprise unto itself, you know, apart from ideology. I I enjoyed it as a spectacle, but I didn't think about it as entertainment. I thought about it as, you know, uh, very somber and important stuff. And I felt like 
when you read this stuff, you know, you're partaking in the discourse mm -hmm. and it's great, which I think kind of mirrors your attitude towards, you know, the Dark Knight well, when, we, when we first yeah. met. <laughs> the, the Rise of Skywalker, for instance, has some positive reviews. It's over 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. And when you read most of the positive reviews, it all, they, it all has an element of, well, you know, it's got its flaws, but you got to hand it to them. It's a Star Wars movie. It's God. got, it's got, it's got all the stars and the wars in it and you can quibble, but it, it's one of those, it's one of those movies. <laughs> Some of those positive reviews still seem to have this default attitude that, well, of course we have to respect this, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it, it's the brand. We so respect that, this. So those, those reviewers, they're like Biden voters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess just to kind of finish our decade in review episode slash our parasite episode. And we hit all the <laughs> most important things of the decade. <laughs> That's right. I did want to just kind of end the episode by maybe each of us giving a sort of earnest take on on what we think the last decade meant. I know that's like a big like what will you what will you think about most, either in, you know, the film stuff you're talking about or or just more generally? Um, for me, what were its kind of arcs to you? You know, for me, it was probably the election of Donald Trump. I yeah. think if I had to boil it down to a single moment, it was that. I think the way I'll remember it is as a decade of kind of, on the one hand, you know, radical possibility, but also intensified risk. Obviously, that that thing people kind of hackily say every New Year's is actually true. You know, um, decades are just an arbitrary measurement of time, right? When we think about the '60s. You know, the 60s didn't really begin in 1960 mm -hmm. and end in 1970, right? They they began in like, what we think of as the 60s began in maybe generously 1964. If you want to be super hacky about it, ended when that uh, that giant hippie music festival, yeah. you know, failed or whatever in 1969. Uh, yeah, the Altamont, yeah. That's right. Um, and I think the same can be said about this last decade. I mean, I think the most natural place to begin it, because, you know, decades are continuums. They're not 10-year blocks of time. The most natural place to begin it really is with the financial crash mm -hmm. and with the kind of spirit of hope and optimism that briefly, fleetingly came with the election of Barack Obama. And when I think of where we were at during the actual start of the decade, which was a time when the left was nowhere, it was considered very eccentric to identify as a socialist. You know, just a few years later... We saw the rise of uh, Bernie Sanders, the unthinkable rise of Bernie Sanders. We saw the rise of Corbyn in the UK. We saw millions of uh, young people in particular attracted to and, and, and engaged with uh, socialist ideas and with a whole alternative way of thinking um, about the future. I think for the first time we saw people genuinely, you know, absorbing and understanding, you know, my, I include myself in this, you know, the severity of the climate crisis, the urgency of it being addressed. You know, we saw all those things. And then at the same time, the nihilistic right-wing death drive that, I mean, I won't say it began with the Tea Party, but since we're talking about this decade, that began with John McCain choosing, you know, Sarah Palin and, you know, mm -hmm. the rise of kind of the, uh, you know, the, 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 tea, the Tea Party right. back. <laughs> well, the right's always been vulgar. <laughs> the more vulgar right, let's yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Um, all of that has only has only intensified to the extent that it's now the the human death drive you know manifest um it you know is abandoned all pretense to kind of humanity or honesty i mean at, at times in the past it did at least sort of pretend and mm -hmm. with you know with a figure like trump or the figure like boris johnson that just completely goes out the window i think when i say that the election of trump was the defining moment of the decade for me the reason is because it made me understand that the arc of history does not necessarily bend towards progress. I think, uh, like a lot of people, I just had the complacent view that 
well, you know, we're, we're past the point of somebody like Donald Trump being able to be elected. Yeah, right. You thought Hillary was going to win and usher in the second New Deal. and I, I, Well, I, actually, no, I, I take it she, back. I, I would have thought she, she would have. And she, then, she would have incrementally right, right. ushered in. The second New Deal would have been a bipartisan cut of Social Security and Medicare or something. Yeah. So uh, I, I guess it was a realization that the arc of history only bends towards progress, like if you make it. Yeah, capsule review of of, uh, the 2010s. Progress is possible, but not inevitable. Why don't we leave it at that? And I won't forget the way you said, darling, I love you. You gave me faith to go on. Now we're there and we've only just begun. This will be our year. Took a long time to come. The warmth of your smile, smile for me. Don't have to worry, all your worry days are gone And this will be our year, took a long time to come And I won't forget the way you held me up when I was down And I won't forget the way you said, darling I love you You gave me faith to go on Now we're there and we've only just begun This will be our year, took a long time to This will be our year Took a long time to 